You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. It may go without saying, but I'll say it. Being a Chief Information Security Officer, CISO, is a tough job, high profile tough. CISOs are on the front lines, protecting against the TBD unknown day after day, week after week, month after month. Threats are relentless, work is unpredictable, staff shortages continue to fuel a vicious cycle of burnout. And on top of it all, the buck stops with the CISO. When things go wrong, they're positioned as being the throat to choke, as Forbes recently put it. It's no wonder mental health issues such as depression and anxiety are surging in our industry. There's a lot of things that need to change, but fortunately this once taboo subject is starting to get the attention it so desperately deserves thanks to security leaders who are stepping forward. Their personal stories help humanize the cybersecurity team. They acknowledge that despite the sleepless nights and heroic efforts, protectors of digital space are indeed human. And as the stakes continuously grow higher, so too does the need for true support, empathy, and action. This October is not only Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but also National Depression and Mental Health Screening Month, a time to elevate this critical conversation, advocate against stigma, and bring awareness to the various resources available to those who need them. I'm honored today to host Trust Issues alongside our guest, Kirsten Davies, who's the CISO for Unilever and passionate about humanizing the teams in our cybersecurity community. Unilever is, of course, a huge company with hundreds of brands and products beneath its umbrella. And to try to wrap your head around the potential scope of being at CISO is daunting, to say the least. As Kirsten tells it, the responsibility and accountability in the CISO role are enormous, and burnout and stress are at a crisis level. She feels this acutely. We get into that and lots of other things that are on the mind of a big-time CISO with the same number of hours and minutes in her day that we all have. It was great to get the opportunity to talk with Kirsten. Her candor is admirable and her shoes are large. Here's our conversation. So you are the CISO for Unilever, which is a massive global consumer packaged goods company with over 400 consumer goods brands and 148,000 employees. Some of the brands I'm sure people are familiar with, uh, overly familiar with, Hellman's, Ben & Jerry's, Dove, seventh generation, uh, Vaseline, there are so many. Um, So to, to dive in and just sort of start out broad, what does your role as Unilever CISO encompass, and what's a typical day look like for you if there is such a thing? Hmm. That's a great question. I wonder if you can ask any CISO what their typical day is. Um, it it uh, varies. I think it's one of the things that we love about the work is that there are new challenges that emerge every day. 
great company. We produce 50% of the world's ice cream. That's a heck of a lot of smiles. I'm telling you, that's a heck of a lot of smiles all around the world. The remit for the program is end-to-end cybersecurity risk for the organization. So that includes the typical that you would expect. It's, you know, the managed technology estate, the managed IT estate as it it used to be known. Um, But it goes much further than that as well. We see risk in in a very broad, holistic way at Unilever. So it's everything from, you know, the regulatory and compliance challenges that we have uh, globally uh, from our footprints in over 180 countries globally, um, to the operational resilience of things like our core network, yes, but also our factories, distribution centers, R&D, all of that kind of a thing. We also look at information protection and information security as, as one would would expect uh, that we would. We look at the uh, security and uh, resilience of all of our technology touch points, all of our digital interactions uh, from our factories to our uh, technology um, IT, traditional IT as well. And then finally, um, probably something that we'll double click into a little bit more in a bit is is the culture. It's the capability, yes, of my team, of, of the cybersecurity team, the core team itself, but also the security mindset of the organization, because that is critical from an enterprise cybersecurity risk perspective that that the culture embraces cybersecurity, cyber safety um, as part of their their responsibilities. How big is your team and how you've been with the company now for about a year or so. How have things changed since you've uh, arrived? Yeah, I sure have. I actually just celebrated my one year anniversary. I think it was a week ago. Congratulations! <laughs> um, thank you. Yes, made it. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> no, it's just uh, you know it's it's been such a unique challenge coming out of COVID, like the the lockdown, lockdown globally of COVID into this new kind of emerging world, right? Of how do we do these things in hybrid mode? How do we you know, approach cybersecurity and how do we do business, right? So there's a lot of companies that are still figuring this out. And while I don't publish the numbers of my team um, and have never done so, um, I'd say that, you know, it's it's really an interesting conversation to have to say, you know, what are the things that we're focused on and, and what has changed um, since I've been on board? Do credit and respect to my predecessors in this role. Nobody has an easy job as a CISO these days. No one does. At, at no organization is this job easy. Um, and so it's I, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were, um, that have been evolving um, and and managing and elevating the security posture of this organization. And so I've I've picked up a bit where some of them have left off and some really great work that they that they were able to accomplish in their tenures here. And we're we're evolving right now. I'm uh, reorganizing the team to reflect the broader remit that we have now that I'm on board um, to reflect uh, the rise of the CISO, as we call it, which is essentially, I don't sit inside of IT. Um, my my team sits alongside of IT. We sit alongside supply chain. We sit alongside the data office. And we work and partner and influence and solution engineer uh, alongside all of these teams. And so there's been a there's been a fundamental shift, I would say, uh, uh, during 
my tenure here. And that has matched, as it should, the shift in our organization too. So it's public knowledge that we're undergoing a a massive transition at Unilever where we have the focus of five, the power of one. Focus of five being the five different business groups that we have that are end-to-end global. So ice cream being one of them, right? Health and well-being and nutrition, um, things like that. And so we've, we've necessarily needed to Um, not only respond to that change, but also partner in and enable that change for Unilever to ensure the success of our business colleagues and and us as a whole as Unilever. So organizational change, that's something that isn't uh, necessarily new to you. You've worked in some other companies that that people out there may have heard of, like Estee Lauder, Barclays, Hewlett-Packard, Booz Allen Hamilton, Deloitte, big, big name. Big names, long list. Um, How is organizational change something that's been a hallmark to your career? And what have you learned along the way that you're putting into place now? I read an amazing series of books um, quite some time ago, Built to Last. And the subsequent book to that was Built to Change. (laughs) And what's happened, and and I'm sure you've seen this and your, your audience has seen this over time, is that companies who have designed themselves for steadfastness and, and, you know, quote unquote, security or foundational stability in the market, aka Kodak, have, have been left behind in a lot of the changes that we have seen globally speaking from the you know the rapid pace of technology innovation to rapid digitization of everything everything is connected now right to changing consumer habits and buying patterns to changes in the workforce um, where we have five generations in the workforce right now first time in history that that's ever happened short of being in small mon pa uh, companies right and so the hallmark of of my career has been change. I I am a change manager. I'm a I'm a change instigator, as it were, and I'm a change influencer. And I think that we constantly, especially in the cybersecurity industry, but also in business, of course. But we're speaking today about cybersecurity. We need to be evolving. Why the threats are evolving, the the threat actors are evolving, the technology that they're using to attack is evolving. The the velocity and the the rapidness with which the change has come on the attacker side needs to be met with a dynamic workforce, a dynamic technical capability, and a dynamic culture in order for us to even just just respond in kind, let alone get ahead of these things. And so that's been part of it too. You know, we want to have these wonderful, challenging environments for our teams because people get bored, right? Nobody wants to stare at a screen anymore and look for alerts. Like like people just get bored and there's fatigue in all of this. And so we need to be shifting and and really um, just just inserting dynamism into our our organization, into the processes that are there, um, in order to just inject this this ability to be agile and to innovate all of the time. So do you think that it's possible to be a successful CISO if you're not a change instigator? Really, really like that term, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm not going to make a commentary on my colleagues um, for, uh-huh. for that. I think for me to mm-hmm. be a successful CISO, 
I need to be able to embrace change very closely. And often, as has been the hallmark of my career, I've been brought in to change things for whatever reason. So we were transforming the global information security program at Siemens, 335,000 employees, double that in business partner connections at the time, right? Enormous ask. There were 26 people that had the title of CISO across Siemens when I came on board and was was supporting and helping and leading and serving that organization. Um, likewise, when I went to Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, you know, they were right in the middle of the splits, the largest business split in the history of business at the time was the HPE-HPI split, right? And having stayed on the HPE side, which is what I was hired to come in and do, you know, we were needing to re-strategize what did cybersecurity look like for for the enterprise side, being a service delivery partner to Inc. as it was standing up for the printers and personal devices, you know, and a very dear friend of mine is the CISO there now, um, who we exchanged almost, I feel like we changed seats from Siemens to HP and all of that kind of a thing. And she's the CISO now at HP Inc. You know, it, it's been a hallmark of my career, which is we need to do things differently. And we don't always have the answers from the very beginning, but it's an evolution as the change happens. And I think that everybody has a little piece of the the solution. And so it's also about bringing in all of those threads of logic, the threads of analysis, the threads of insight, and, and bringing those things together to make something that's much more um, holistic and dynamic than it was before we started. So in order to do that, you need people who come from various backgrounds that can look at things through different filters. Obviously, one of the things we hear about a lot, we talk about a lot uh, within the industry is the talent shortage, the skills gap. How are you navigating that? How are you getting creative when it comes to hiring and finding cyber talent? Yeah, also, uh, one of the things I'm very passionate about, uh, not having grown up in IT, <laughs> um, not having been kind of dyed in the wool. Right. Did I read somewhere that you wanted to be a spy at some yes, point? Yes, I did. Uh -huh. I did. Now I just work against like the bad guys, but is it, maybe <laughs> it's the same thing at the end of the day. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. um, I actually was a professional musician, uh, singer songwriter for a while. And um, had I mean, there's there's other interviews that I've done that, that talk about that career right. progression. But the bottom line premise for me has been anybody can get into this field if they have the right training, number one, and number two, the right opportunity. And number three, yes, coaching, mentoring. There's such a broader risk landscape now in cybersecurity than just the deep technical aspects that will always be a core of what we do. But when it comes to a talent perspective, that's also been one of one of the hypotheses turned proven facts um, that I've pursued, which is anybody can get into this career and be successful at it. Um, there's there's a number of companies that are doing this now. We're you know working with a with an amazing organization out of Nigeria that is working with women between the ages of i think it's 16 to 27 and um developing uh some just amazing talent right in Nigeria we're working with them there's another company in the United States that's um taken an approach to developing rural talent 
based upon the, uh, you know, kind of some tax input, some mayoral things, you know, government things in the, in, in the state, and then retraining veterans and nurses and educators to be doing cybersecurity. Likewise, I, I built a, a pilot program in South Africa when I was with Barclays uh, with the support of, of the bank, with the support of the South African government and Rhodes University to create an, an incubation function, as it were, to, to develop some, some entry-level cybersecurity talent from people who are going to be losing their jobs due to automation. I believe wholeheartedly this can be done. We need to be doing this at scale. And that's one of the things as an industry, I really feel that that we as executives in the industry really need to embrace this and tackle this. I'm doing my part. Um, I've proven the model can work. I I didn't start in tech and and yet here I am. And so I really feel like anybody can do this with the right opportunities, training, mentoring, all of that. And entry level would be the key. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I think one of the challenges is there's, there's a multi multifocal challenge that we have. Budgets are infamously constrained um, in cybersecurity, and I hate to lean on budgets, but the budget unlock is such an important thing. For every dollar that we get, we we need to have a multiplier effect on the dollar, the pound, the euro that we have to spend on cybersecurity. And we have often then been, been really kind of like funneled into a pathway that says we have to hire the most experienced person that we possibly can afford because we need them to hit the ground running. That's always been the case. Well, guess what? We've created this monster of an environment where people hop from job to job based upon pay, right? They hop to job job to job based on other things as well. But it's the 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 organizations that can afford to pay higher rates for cybersecurity will poach. And and I I kind of don't blame them. And at the same time, I'm like, ah, stop, just stop, right? So I get it. Like they, we, we have a, a, a high um, competition factor for for pay. We have therefore a high competition factor for, for people with experience. Because if you're expecting the people to be able to hit the ground running, guess what? We're not doing. We're not investing in entry level talent. We're not investing in business side talent that only requires a, a little bit of contextual cyber education. For example having people from in manufacturing, hiring people in from the supply chain side. They're engineers. They understand it. They just need to understand MITRE ATT&CK, threat pathways. They need to understand the cyber side of it. And that can be a multiplier effect for their understanding of how uh, manufacturing belt works, how the robotics arms work, how um, you know driverless uh, cars work in in the sense of like moving inventory around. So, I think we need to be much more creative around that. And the problems have of it have been around kind of budget filled with headcount approvals, filled with kind of like shortage of talent in the market. And I, I believe that we, as kind of the biggies, the bigger, the the bigger organizations, we really need to be addressing this and start, start investing in and recruiting in the startup, right? The entry level talent. And I know that there's a lot of organizations that are doing it, which is good. 
we needed to be doing this 10 years ago, but we're, we're getting there. Great. Thank you for that. Um, moving, uh, on to a different, uh, subject, sort of, all of them are related, of course, though. Um, you speak quite a bit about personal resilience. How is that particularly pertinent to the CISO world right now? It's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. With the advent of the global pandemic and the lockdowns and everybody having to necessarily have an all hands on deck approach to provisioning IT, provisioning access, you know, how do how do we get people working in different ways? Some companies are digitally native, and I think that they came out of that much more rapidly and they were able to get to a BAU much more rapidly than other companies were able to do so. What I've seen has been the hallmark though is uh, is a couple of things. In 2016 there was a study that came out that um, that named the number out of four CISOs that are abusing alcohol and prescription medication in order to deal with the level of stress of the day. That was in 2016. That was pre-COVID. Um, I think it was one out of four. Somebody asked me about that and they said, what do you think of this? And I said, that's all. I think it's actually more than that. <laughs> Tongue in cheek, but but literally. Um, so pre-COVID, we, we knew that we already had an issue with this, that the stress levels and the responsibility and the accountability in this role are enormous. And they are um, you feel a bit like Atlas with the weight of the world on your shoulders at times. Then you add COVID into this. And a lot of us as the CISOs were, were the tip of the point of the spear when it came to really driving availability and resilience. We were partnering with our CIO organizations. We were working with our business partners globally. We were caretaking people, caretaking, you know, any number of, of outages and stress factors that were there. And, and when the business businesses that we are, that we serve were able to get to a little bit of a level of <sighs> exhale and find a rhythm, what I witnessed was nobody was taking care of the cybersecurity teams and the CISOs who had been the tip of the point of the spear for so long were now at crisis levels of adrenaline, crisis levels of stress, um, really overwhelming levels of feeling responsible and accountable, and 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 just it's that it's that fight or flight mentality, right, that we go through post COVID now, which I you know kind of fingers crossed say that we're in a post COVID world. To a certain extent, we are. I see teams working just as hard as they were during that crisis. The hours that we put in as CISOs are unsustainable. The hours our teams are putting in, completely unsustainable. And yet the attacks still come because the threat actors are still out there, right? Everything is still there. And so I, I talk about this a bit and I've been public about it because I feel like sometimes it's a bit of a taboo topic to talk about mental health and, and mental resilience and personal resilience. But I'll tell you what, there, there are some folks out there who are really struggling and we need the support of one another. We need to be able to talk about this much more openly. What do you think is key to a solution? There's a couple of things, and I think that's a great question, and we're still, I think we all need to discover what that looks like for us individually and for our teams as leaders. Um, transparency is key. 
I personally had to have a conversation with my team when I was going through um, some some health challenges. And then um, my mom has been going through some health challenges. And I had to be transparent with my team and go, you know what? I... I'm I'm having some challenges here in my personal life and it's going to bleed over into my professional life not because I'm weak not because I can't manage or I can't handle it just because we can't post covid separate our personal lives from our professional lives anymore everything's merged I'm you know I'm on the podcast with you from my home office which is in <laughs> which, Nashville I should point which out. is in Nashville Tennessee yep. and my job is in London right so right. um I, it, it's impossible anymore to separate those two things and so I think there's there's an amount of self-awareness and transparency that's needed with our teams. I think that that also creates um, a pathway for our teams to be honest with us and to let us know when they're struggling. And even just with the visibility, it creates an opportunity for discussion, for solution, for for even just empathy, empathy, because we're all going through something. We're all, we're human. We're all going through something right now. Right. I think that's key right there. I think we need to model the behavior. This goes with the transparency. We need to model the behavior that we expect of our teams, which is difficult in a global environment. I'm emailing at very odd hours for a team that's, you know, some of my teams sitting in India. But we need to model the behavior that gives them permission to be human, which is family first, right? Take your vacations. Um, if I'm emailing you on an off hour, I don't expect your response until you're actually back in office or, you know, back on normal, quote unquote, normal office hours. I think just those simple keys are super helpful to it. And I think honestly, we need to lean into and get support from our HR business partners as well, because we're seeing that this is this is really a challenge for big corporates and big organizations. And people, we're human. We're human first. We're workers later, right? We're human first. And we need support for the human experience that we've all gone through. A bio of yours I've read says, you design and lead holistic digital trust programs. You, of course, had us at trust. But what does this mean and how does trust factor into what you do? That's a great question. Trust is at the core of everything that we need, both in human interactions, in digital interactions, right? And in corporate, legislative, every, every interaction. The depth that we build that trust is going to equal the lengths to which we will excel in relationships, in corporate initiatives and things like that. Let me give you a, a specific example. Statistically, it's shown, it has been shown that consumers will leave their favorite company, favorite brand, favorite product if they lose trust in that. Some of that is the safety of the product, right? So like the ingredients and things like that. Some of it is in, well, how I interacted as a consumer with that company. If there's a data breach on an e-commerce platform, right? Statistically, it's shown that the measure with which consumers lose the trust in, in the organization or in the product is the, the level with which they will kind of vote with their feet, as we say, 
stay or leave, right? And so, you know, one of the things I, I, I love about Unilever is our commitment to product safety, product quality, right? And the safety of our colleagues in factories, right? We have leveraged that to be also the way in which we talk about cyber safety and and the trust that we build in all of our interactions. So digital interactions, data flows, um, handshakes of applications themselves or, or OT environment, things like that. Some of the things they won't be aware of, the things that are happening behind the scenes, but that that's what we want to build in every interaction we have with regulators, with shareholders, with consumers, with our customer bases, with each other as colleagues as well. We want to be able to, and we should be able to trust that our interactions are secure, that they are risk managed, right? That that privacy data is kept private, things like that. Is there such thing as 100%? No, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that is our job, is to build trust everywhere we go. And, and that positively directly impacts the reputation of the organizations that we serve. Everyone has a responsibility to ensure that the organization remains cyber safe. And that covers email phishing to vishing, smishing to, you know, factories to, you know, infrastructure to to everything, data everywhere, right? Um, And that's, that is super, super important for organizations to embrace. It's not the CISO's job or the CISO's program job to do everything security. It's everyone's Everyone's job. job. Everyone's job. For sure. And from a cultural standpoint, which is something you had mentioned earlier on in the discussion, how far have things come along since you've, since you've joined the the organization? Yeah, we've, uh, the team has done a great job again, standing on the shoulder of giants that came before me. So one of the things I walked into at, at the, in the role was a, quite a strong awareness and training area that we've, that we've simply just made stronger now, right? We've done more. Um, we have an amazing campaign we're about ready to launch. I cannot tell you what it is, but I am so super excited. We're leveraging some of our brand names. It's an internal cyber awareness campaign. Um, we Does it got involve the prim- ice cream? Uh, it does actually. Right. It does. Um, we got permission from the brands to use their brands. We've got permission from um, some different folks, corporate comms, and from from um, our PR teams to to do some pretty unconventional things because things aren't always what they seem. That sounds fantastic. Look, looking forward to having you back on again so we can hear how that went and get all the details about it. Um, love to talk to you a little bit about your passion projects. You've got many of them. Are there any in particular right now that you're feeling particularly passionate about? I'm particularly passionate about fighting, fighting cancer. My mom has been stricken by it, and I am particularly passionate about this. I've been involved with the uh, Breast Cancer Research Foundation since uh, being at Estee Lauder Companies. As a matter of fact, shortly, there's the Tech Day of Pink uh, that the CIO there uh, started as his passion project, which I love. And people and companies around the world are, are committing their technology teams to wearing pink on, on a specific day. I'm also involved you know, locally in, in Nashville with the uh, Nashville Wine Auction that is, you know, hey, wine 
and cancer research. I love it. That's it's a great uh, company of worlds for mm-hmm. me. Um, that's there, but we we do a lot of uh, some great uh, uh, foundations here in Nashville um, that we support. You know, not the least of which is the St. Jude's Children Hospital, the Vanderbilt Research Community that's there. And I'd say, secondly, um, as as things would have it, I've I've been blessed to be placed in a leadership position as a woman in a field where there're not a lot of women not a lot of women in my my role right and i never saw myself as a you know female ceo or a female practitioner i'm just a practitioner however i think that when you sit in this chair uh, when one sits in this chair and when one has the the rare opportunity to kind of lift your head up and look around a little bit um I, I have become increasingly passionate about women in not just in this field, but women in technology um, and and opportunities for women around the world. Um, I'm I've partnered in with um, Nomi Network, which is in India, and uh, we kind of adopt a whole village of women and and provide for them education and opportunities for uh, for raising their own income, um, right. And, and providing them an opportunity that's outside of some of the crime and stuff that, that, that happens in, um, underdeveloped areas of the world, which leads second, secondly to, I'm super, super passionate about fighting human trafficking. I'm a direct sponsor and partner with A21. There's many organizations out there, but I think you can kind of see the theme of, mm, yeah, opportunities that I've had, even with my background, which would not have led me to a technology field or a CISO career, opportunities that I had as a woman, even though I didn't see myself as being the female X, right? The female fill in the blank. I've, I've taken upon that as just the, the, there's a responsibility and there's, there's a weight that comes with that, that, it's it's an honor to be able to carry that weight and to to do the best that I can to make a difference in women's lives around the world, women and girls and people in general, yes, but but women and girls especially. You had mentioned coffee before we started recording, and <laughs> I can imagine that plays a very significant role in your in your day to day. And we appreciate you being caffeinated today and and talking with us. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure to be on this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but, you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 